Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm privileged to serve as your host and interviewer each week. You may also recognize me or recognize my voice as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, now in its fourth year and the world's largest weekly leadership podcast where each week we interview remarkable names, people like Tony Robbins and Brene Brown and Liz Wiseman and Susan Cain and Seth Godin and Matthew McConaughey, people from all walks of life, whether they are business titans or best-selling authors or Pulitzer Prize winning authors as well, Hollywood celebrities where they have something insightful to learn and to share with the rest of us. In fact, many times it is also not household names, people that have actually survived the trauma or had some remarkable career that we could learn from as well. And what we also found is that on the other podcast, that it wasn't always the biggest celebrity who was the most downloaded interview. It was oftentimes people like today's guest, people like you and I that have had remarkable careers, but are relatable in their journey. And today, Lisa Chang is joining us. She is the Senior Vice President and Global Chief People Officer from the Coca-Cola Company, joining us from the bastion of light and positivity, I'm guessing in her home, from Atlanta, Georgia. Lisa, welcome to today's podcast. Hi, good afternoon. Hi. Can't help but get a great vibe from you, the sun coming in today. It's very great to see you. Lisa, thanks for your time today. Each week, we try to spotlight a different person in the C-suite. Sometimes it's someone that's you know become the CEO, or perhaps they're the CEO or the COO, any number of C-levels. But I think generally it's always great to have a chief human resource officer because they are so in touch with what's happening at all levels of the organization. Onboarding, recruiting, retention, those that are exiting, building the culture. And so it's great to have you and what is a household name around the world. Lisa, what I'd like to do before I ask you questions about the insights you see in people's careers and culture today. Will you kind of walk us through what is your career journey? Because if I'm not mistaken, in my research, you've had a bit of serendipity. I think your exposure uh, to human resources start either as an internship, even with like a, a technology company, and then you fell in love with the journey. So I'd love for you to give hope to people who are finding their own serendipitous journey that it may end as well as yours has. All right, thank you for that um, big lead up there. Um, I guess the best way to describe my career is it is a series of failures that led me here. So um, I'm a med school dropout, um, was supposed to go to med school according to the family's life plan, but instead found my way to human resources. Um, did get here through an internship, have worked through a variety of roles, started in a specialist realm, up through the compensation ranks, worked in banking, worked in manufacturing, and then got into media. Worked for a little company called the Weather Channel for about 11 years in the heyday. And then we started this thing called the internet, weather.com. Then I moved over to Turner Broadcasting and CNN where I did international for about five years. Then another financial services company called Equifax. And then I landed um, for about five years in professional sports. Um, not as an athlete, sadly, um, but certainly as I'm running HR for a portfolio of Atlanta-based sports franchises, including our professional NFL team, the Falcons. I was here when we launched the Atlanta United soccer team and built the now um, famous shiny Mercedes-Benz Stadium here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I uh, did that for about five years and then landed here at Coca-Cola a little under four years ago in my current role as a global chief people officer. So 
a lot of different steps along the way, but um, one thing stands true is it's all been about people. In fact, Lisa, I think I read in an interview where you talked about how important it is to lead through people. One of Franklin Covey's value propositions, if you will, is that a leader's job, in fact, is to achieve results with and through other people. That's a mindset, that your job is not to rush in and save the day, to go it alone. You'll be very bitter <laughs> and work a lot if you don't realize the need to create capacity in others. And I think I also read once where you felt like the pipeline of leaders, perhaps coming into even Coca-Cola, might even be better equipped to deal with the future of that challenge because the current leaders are so focused on the business, but that the pipeline of leaders are focused on achieving results with and through people. Riff on that for a few moments and maybe just reinforce the value of recognizing that a leader's job is to achieve results with and through other people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is definitely a coming um, for the recognition that we have around the focus on leading through people. And so what we've done here at Coca-Cola over the last few years is we've collected an enormous amount of data about our leaders. And we've done assessments, we've done engagement surveys, we've done um, feedback, and we've really tried to hone in on what are the success criteria that makes a really great leader for us. And not only because we led through a pandemic and many other crises over the last few years, but what we came to recognize is that the leaders of today, so the senior leaders that are currently sitting in the seats, grew up in a very traditional business mindset, right? It was one of much more hierarchy. It was one of um, command and control. It was, you know, everybody had sort of their lane that they stayed in. And so everyone developed a functional and a subject matter technical expertise. And what you wanted to do to be a leader is learn to be a general manager, right? And so general manage the business. And we saw that in the data. Our existing leaders are very, very technically strong. They're very sound commercial and business leaders, and they're really good at making those business decisions and executing through crises. What we then found was where we were falling down on the gaps were in this day and age, people want inspiration. They want purpose, they want values, they want vision, they want leaders who are authentic and who really understand what it means to lead through people. And so we thought that was an interesting uh, aha moment. So we went back and we said, all right, let's go click down and let's look at the leaders that are one level and two levels down and let's assess them. And an interesting thing happened is we determined that those leaders, the up and coming leaders had a natural bias towards leading through people on the softer side. They were more inspirational, they were more transparent, and they were caring, they genuinely connected with people, they genuinely cared about their careers, and it was less, again, this form and function that those of us that grew up in a sort of a technical management era had acquired. And so that led us to this conclusion that we do have leaders of the future already in the organization who are better equipped to lead in the way in which people want to be led in the future. And the real challenge for us is to get them ready on the business side, right? And to relinquish some of the management folks that have been in the seats for a long time to allow those people to grow further and faster into the pipeline. But it was a really interesting exercise that is, is um, supported by data. Lisa, most if not all of your career has been in human resources or in around that space. And this may or may not be a reasonable cliche, but we've often heard that human resources, you know, wants a seat at the table. They or they need to earn a seat at the table. And in many companies, human resources hasn't been. They've been in the back of the room, so to speak, kind of like the president's cabinet, right? There's some 
cabinet seats at the table and some are up against the wall, but they're in the room. Uh, to the extent you agree or disagree with that concept, what have you done as you become now the chief human resource officer of one of the most, if not the most, recognizable brand in the world, the Coca-Cola company, what have you done specifically in your own career to ensure that human resources has a seat at the table and you personally, and my hope is that everyone listening right now can maybe take away a couple of things that you've done around your acumen, your learning, your communication, some of the successes that you've had in your own career. I want you to check your humility. What have you done to make sure that you and your team has a seat at the table? Yeah, I mean, I think my specific story is I did take a sidestep, although brief, outside of HR. And I managed a product line for a little while when I was at the Weather Channel. And I think that really shaped my orientation on what it means to have a seat at the table. There's nothing like having a P&L and owning revenue to have a seat at the table because it's the hot seat, that's for sure. Um, and so when I was in that seat, the recognition was you know, my job as an HR person is to make the business people as successful as possible, give them the tools and enable the success through their people. And that really is only done through understanding what it takes to run the business. And so each step of the way, as I, you know, started to um, accelerate in my career and I got more and more responsibility, I dug deeper and deeper into learning the business, not learning the function of HR, but learning the business and learning our customers and learning our competition and learning what it was that our business people were faced with, because that better equipped me to create the tools and um, processes that they need to help generate the value for their people. And so when I think about when I, uh, you know, acquired a seat at the table, what is it that I show up as and how do I communicate at the table? I really do put on my enterprise hat. I very rarely try to sit at the table as an HR person. When I sit at the enterprise table, I'm an enterprise leader. And I really try to contribute in all ways, not just through the lens of my functional area, but I try to be curious, I try to ask questions, I try to make sure that I'm thinking about things from all aspects, even a consumer standpoint. And I think that's really the value that you add is by the time you get to the table, they really aren't as interested in your functional expertise as they am, as they are in the collective um, discussion that you can have as a team. And so to me, that's been the most important part. I've been very fortunate to be part of management teams that have put me at the table because of that whole view and not because of HR. Um, very rarely do they want to talk about you know, HR processes. And so that's, again, the orientation that I take is you know, I, I put on my enterprise hat when I enter into those discussions at the table. Lisa, let's talk about DEI. Uh, I've heard you also say that, you know, the future of DEI is perhaps beyond representation. What does that mean and what does that look like practically for people that are watching or listening to this podcast, that are in the C-suite, that are trying to do the right thing? They're trying to build inclusive cultures. They're trying to make sure that people have a voice. People choose to stay at Franklin Covey. We like to describe our place as a, you know, workplace of choice for achievers with heart. We want people to choose to come and choose to stay. What does it look like what you might say is beyond re just representation? Yeah, it's exactly that. It's, it is inclusion. Um, and it's making sure that people can not only see themselves in representation, but they can be themselves. And so the environments that we try to create, the support systems that we have in place are designed to address some of the representation issues, which are you know, an aspiration we have to be 50% led by women to mirror the markets in which we serve. 
that's really a baseline. You have to start with that. But having representation doesn't mean that you have an inclusive environment. And it doesn't mean that people feel welcome. It doesn't mean that people feel supported. And it doesn't mean that necessarily people have op equal opportunities. And so the focus on beyond representation for us is to look at all three legs of the stool, if you will, which are the inclusion, the representation, and the support that people need to have that type of environment. We do that through sponsorship programs. We make sure that you know, we have a mentoring and sponsorship programs. We have special leadership development courses and um, cohorts that are designed to bring women together, that are designed to bring different cohorts of people together for learning. And then more importantly, we, we have an environment where we have um, inclusion networks, which is our version of business resource groups. And that again is to help people understand that you have to see to be, right? And so once we have a mass of people of likeness, giving them a place to be together, to share their ups and their downs, to get advice, to be able to um, ping things off of each other is an important part of that inclusion equation. And so, you know, being overly focused on one aspect and the numbers of inclusion doesn't necessarily, not inclusion, representation doesn't necessarily get you to the inclusion spectrum. And perhaps is different in different environments too. Uh, you lead human resource function for the Coca-Cola company for employees in 200 countries. Depending upon your politics, the number of countries in the world may flux year by year, but let's just go with about 200 countries. And I'm guessing there are some central functions that you think are universal, they're principles, and every Coca-Cola employee worldwide follows this protocol. And I'm guessing there also are, is the localization of, well, we do things differently in Nigeria than perhaps we do in Haiti because of local customs. I guess it speaks to both principles and agility, is how do you localize certain things while still honoring the values of Coca-Cola. Can you speak to, again, you know, next to the legality of following the local laws, there's nothing more important than treating people equitably and fairly. How do you, as the CHRO of a global company, flex while still tr staying true to your values and the law? Yeah, I mean, that that really is the, the key question. And for a company like Coca-Cola, I liken it to our business model. Um, we, we talk about our business model being in three stages. We were one product, Red Coke, in one country, the U.S. And then we became one product, Red Coke, in multiple countries. And now we're multiple products in multiple countries. And so I liken that a lot to the way we've expanded our footprint culturally, geographically, and as employees. And so we start with our purpose, which is to refresh the world and make a difference. And that is global. Every employee in our over 200 countries around the world knows that that's our purpose and that behind that are a series of values and principles that we stand behind that allow us to show up responsibly, not only as an employer, but as um, a supplier and as a customer um, to our consumers. Beyond that, we then look at things like the inclusion that we talked about and the inclusive environment that we're in and this desire to represent the markets that we serve. And then we have a set of leadership behaviors that are also consistent across the 200 countries. And that's really three things. It's to be the model. So we want all of our leaders to model the behaviors of a great Coca-Cola leader to help set the agenda, which is helping people to prioritize and understanding the North Star, where we're going and what their priorities are. And the third one, which I think is the most important one, is to help people be their best selves. We've created a leadership culture where our job 
is not just to develop great people for the Coca-Cola system, but to help people be their best selves in life. And so when you look at the three clicks of the concentric circles from purpose to inclusion to leadership, I think you start to get a footprint that is very consistent, hopefully as consistent as Coca-Cola tastes in all of our markets. Then you start to get into, as you said, some of the subtleties and the nuances of things that either are culturally relevant, geographically relevant, based on language, um, and things like that. But we, we very much believe that the heart of Coca-Cola is embedded in the history of our purpose of refreshing the world. And we've been able to do it for 136 years. And so even as the world has gotten more complex, we keep going back to the simple of, you know, just focus on our purpose and focus on the things that we deliver. And to your point, we're very focused on driving principles, not policies, right? So one of the things that HR is famous for, that was one of my pet peeves is, we're the policy police. We like to create policies, like to manage my policies. In this new world that we're living in now, policies don't carry a lot of weight because things are changing so rapidly. So being principle-based is the best way for us to ensure that continuity and consistency across all of our markets around the world. Let's talk about well-being. I heard a strong emphasis on investing in your leaders so that leaders model the principles of the culture. Uh, what are you doing specifically globally to equip leaders that may have even been uncomfortable talking about well-being or felt there were boundaries where they shouldn't cross with certain employees who kept their work life, their work life, and their home life, their home life, and increasingly people are bringing their whole lives to work, and leaders that maybe are entrenched in the business have to learn how to be a leader in the new world and the new company because well-being and the mental well-being, emotional, physical well-being of our employees is I'm not quite sure what's more important than that. Anything you could share with us, even pragmatically, of how you are training even perhaps those entrenched leaders that are uncomfortable moving into this new conversation around well-being to ensure that they are the empathetic kind of leader that also drives results but helps to move your culture into the new, the new decade. Well, I mean, I think we all got the 101 crash course in that during the pandemic because it was very difficult to separate home and work since we were all working from our homes and we saw all pets and animals and all kinds of things in the background. And so um, I think there was um, a nice crash course where we all recognized that, hey, you know, employees and even leaders are people too, and we have lives that kind of intersect. So that recognition, I think, went really, um, served us really well. And we gained a lot of trust with our employees through, you know, video um, town halls and all kinds of things that we were all doing from our home. So I think that was really, really helpful. I think what happened in my view is during the pandemic, we were using the take care of yourself and take time for yourself, be well, as really, it's almost like when you ask the rhetorical question, how are you? And everybody says, fine. It's like, that was the, the end of every conversation we had, take care of yourself because you know we were in the middle of a pandemic and nobody knew what else to say. Um, I think it has moved beyond that. And I think there is true recognition now that this focus on well-being is real and it needs to be real. What's happening in societies today and the amount of stress that people are experiencing and the sort of the dynamics of um, the, the complicated world that we're living in is having a true impact on people. It's having a true impact on our families and our children. And so this need to focus on mental well-being has moved beyond this 
nice to have to really a must have. And so what we've really tried to do is encourage people to build that into your conversations with people about not only, you know, how's your development coming along? Are you carving out time for your well-being? Well-being in, is, includes self-development. It includes carving out time for yourself to um, focus on your own personal development. Um, and so I think we've tried to move people to that conversation a little more naturally. I think as we're starting to come back together in person um, and we're getting more and more FaceTime, I think there is recognition that there's value in that. Um, having some in-person, but yet respecting the need to have flexibility and for people to go back to their, you know, private spaces to do thinking work and, and things like that. So, um, you know, I don't know that we have the full answer and surely there are still some that are the, the hardcore, okay, enough of the fluffy stuff, let's get back to work. Um, but I think at the end of the day, well-being is not going anywhere. I think this holistic view of the need to care for self, both mentally, physically, emotionally, and financially, is something that employers will be extremely focused on for some time to come because it is um, all-encompassing. And to the extent that employees can contribute to the success of the business, they have to care for themselves. And so we view that as a huge responsibility of ours to create an environment where people feel like they can balance and take care of themselves. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to do a speed round. I'm going to ask you five or six questions. I want to get your top answers. Before that, I had the privilege this week of interviewing the uh, chief future of work officer at PwC. And he talked about these, this concept of power skills, that the, what a lot of people refer to as soft skills are now the power skills. You have your hard skills like and that. your power skills. And I thought it was a great point. I think one of the most important power skills is to have the diplomacy and the courage and the consideration to demonstrate vulnerability and empathy to understand what do your people need? How are you doing? How can I help you? I noticed you've been late this week. Are you okay? Is everything going on? And to respect people's boundaries, but still maybe sometimes move outside your own to make sure you're providing the leadership that your people need. And it might be different for each person. Uh, well said. Let's do the power round. Uh, I'm springing this on you, by the way. So I did not tell Lisa we were going to do a power <laughs> or a speed round. Lisa, what has changed post-pandemic that's not going back? I mean, logically, it's... Um you know, working from home. I mean, being able to do focus time anywhere I want. What is, what's on the horizon that you think too many employers aren't paying enough attention to or aren't prepared for? My team will laugh at this one, but I, I really do think that the metaverse um, from an employee experience standpoint, I'm excited and scared to death all the same. I'm not really sure what it is, yeah. but something the great answer. Uh, speak to my three sons that are 8, 10, and 12. When they enter the workforce a decade from now, what are the top one or two skills they need to develop and perfect to land a job in Coca-Cola 2032? Wow. Okay. I'm going to start recruiting them now. Um, be curious. Uh, the world is changing at such a fast pace. Always be curious and don't be satisfied. Um, you know, be courageous, raise your hand, be willing to take risk, be willing to fail, be willing to learn from your mistakes and um, build a community. Make sure that you have people that you're working with that know who you are, that know what you do, that can speak on your behalf, that can advocate and sponsor you and um, make sure that they know what your goals and aspirations are because sometimes they're in the room and you're not. 
We often hear this advice, we're still in the, in the speed round, we often hear this advice of don't run from something, run to something. We've all run from something in our lives. To the extent you've left a job, and I know Atlanta's a small place, but you've had enough <laughs> companies. When you've left a job, why was it? Not, not that you were running to something, but when you said, I've had enough of this, I need a change, what was going on where you, had, you said, I'm leaving? Yeah, it was culture. Culture, culture your leader created or the culture of the broader organization? A little bit of both. Yeah. Um, but it was a culture where I didn't feel I could be my best. It was a culture where I didn't feel valued for the contributions that I brought. Wow. Um, and maybe it just wasn't a good fit. Yep. Um, but I spent a lot more time worrying about the optics of what people thought than the, the work that I did. Oh and that gosh. was not a great place to be. <laughs> Welcome to Professional Therapy with Lisa Chang. <laughs> Very well said. I think that was beautifully uh, delivered. Uh, what's the one thing you've done in your career that's had the biggest consequence on your overall trajectory? Um, you sort of alluded to it early on, but it was asking for help. Um, I think as a high achiever, um, coming a self-proclaimed from a tiger family, uh, it was never good not to have the answers. And it was always um, really bad if you, you know, made less than an A. So that's a really hard thing to overcome in the workplace when you want to be sure that you're showing up, that you're smart, that you're capable, that you can figure it out and that you don't need help. The minute that I dropped that insecurity and realized that if I knew all the answers, you know, I'd be running the world. And I started asking for help. Um, boy, the skids got greased fast and you start to go really fast. Your parents would have disowned me in eighth grade as a result of algebra <laughs> and ninth grade, but I repeated algebra because all of my failing grades in eighth grade. Hey, mom and pop, guess what? I'm not gonna be an algebra professor. Uh, Lisa, what's the biggest professional mistake you've made as you look back and you say, wow, that's been a big learning. I'm doing this differently now as a result of this series of or singular issue or lack of knowledge that I exhibited? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of what I said before. Um, this really is like therapy. Sorry. Um, it's, um, I overextended myself. I took on more than I could humanly handle um, as a point to prove that I could do it and I couldn't. Um, and I failed at it and um, it was not pretty but I had a great mentor that called me aside and said, you can recover from this, but here are the things you're gonna to have to do. And so, um, you know, we're all humans as well. We have to learn along the way, but that's where we need those people to tell us, to hold up the mirror of truth. I mean, it's a great point. I'll end there because I think it's underrated. I think it is difficult in 2022, going into 2023, to exhibit focus. There is an onslaught of attack, a request for our attention, right? There's, you know, whether it's in our personal lives, our professional lives, I don't know that we spend enough time talking about focus as a leadership competency and the ability to set boundaries and say no and prioritize and put our finest strength. One of our, our former CEO, who's now our chairman, Bob Whitman, used to say something I think is profound. He said, you know, thinking is a legitimate business activity. There tends to be this frenzied optics of, do you look busy, therefore you are busy? I think it was Indra Nui, you know, the respected CEO of one of your competitors that talks about leaders are so caught up in busyness. 
I think we're going to see a resurgence of less is more, right? Uh, more is not better. Better is better. And I appreciate you being vulnerable to talk about how we can easily, in the attempt to feel valued, please someone, take on too much and implode, and then our brand becomes tar tarnished. What would you say to wrap us up around the power of being able to set boundaries, stay focused, and deliver quality work as really your sort of your reputation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's all the things that you said. It's you you have to focus and you have to at some point make make a choice. You have to decide what you want to be good at and where you want to spend your time and your passion. And in the early years, it feels like you want to do everything so that you can make sure that you're in on everything. Yeah. At some point, the road naturally starts to split off and you have to make some choices. And it's okay. Um, it's life is a series of choices and it's a, a series of no regrets. Um, because what's interesting is a lot of people will feel like once you make a choice and you take that right, that there's no, no going back to the left. But what people don't recognize is when you take that right, there are more branches that spin off. And so I never really look at it as being, you know, I cut off a pathway. It's I've just charted new pathways. So I think the advice would be to just continue. Once you make a decision, stick to it and keep going because there will be new opportunities that come. They might not be the same. They'll be different. Um, but if you chose that path, it was probably the right one. You don't know how timely that advice is for me right now. So thank you for sharing that. Lisa Chang, Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resource Officer for the Coca-Cola Company. Thanks for joining us today. Nice talking with you. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>